Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Mile End server. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. Good morning, everyone. How wonderful it is to see so many of your faces. Um, again, like we've been doing these joint services for how many weeks has it been out? So this is the fourth week. Um, but alas, as with uh, a lot of good things, they do sometimes come to a little bit of an end, but we will be continuing our, uh, as Raph mentioned, our AM and PM services from the 3rd of September. So feel free to join us at either of those services. Uh, next week, again, just to reiterate, uh, we will not be meeting here in this building, so if you do come here, it will be empty, there'll be no one here. Um, so uh, just, just please remember that. We'll all be at our uh, annual church retreat, which I am very much looking forward to. Um, sorry, I should just also introduce myself. I feel like I've, I see quite a few new faces. I've been away for two weeks, so I'll come back and it's just wonderful to see actually like new faces join us, so it's incredible. Uh, if we have not met, my name is Adnan. I am one of the leaders here at Christchurch London, uh, and I've been part of the staff team at Christchurch London for about seven or eight months now. Uh, I live in East London with my wife, Jess, so we live in Hackney, just up the road, north of Victoria Park. Uh, it's been quite noisy recently because Stormzy's been playing, and Raf has been adding to that noise. Uh, so thank you for that, Raf. Um, but it's been really, really great and fantastic, and uh, it is so amazing getting to worship here with this church community every single Sunday. Um, summer has just felt really incredible. I feel like um, from different people I've just heard like how uh, God has just been encountering people and, and meeting with people in and through our times of worship, our times together, our times of praying. Um, I don't know what your summer's been like. I've, I've, I've had a uh, I've had a fairly good summer. I hope you have too. Uh, and I'm really, really looking forward to uh, all that God still has in store for us uh, this, uh, in this term. Uh, and of course, next week we have our church retreat, which if the worship this morning is anything to go by, I am pumped for what it will be like uh, next weekend. The, uh, the, the worship just tends, tends to feel like just insane uh, whenever we gather together as a whole church with all our services together. So this is almost like a little bit of a glimpse uh, for me into what, uh, what it could be like next week. Um, so of course, um, we'll get to spend time with Jesus. We get to spend time with each other. We get to spend time just looking and gazing at the glory and majesty of our King uh, and spend time with some quality, uh, spend some quality time with friends as well, which is always a plus. As a staff team, we have been fasting, we have been praying for God to, uh, to really work in us as well uh, and work in all of our church um, through this weekend away. We're really praying that God would meet with us and fill us with his presence and his peace uh, and be refreshed by that. Uh, one way that I tend to view our annual weekend away is uh, almost as a pilgrimage. It's a moment where we get to have this sort of sacred journey to a sacred place, spend some sacred time worshiping God together, but then also then taking that sacred time into our everyday lives afterwards. And in that time, I just love how we get to, uh, to encounter the glory of God and then not just bask in it there and then, but then carry it with us into our everyday lives. And I think that's just uh, not too different from what we see here in this passage that Sakile read out to us uh, in the Transfiguration. 
Today we're looking at what is known as the transfiguration of Jesus in Luke chapter 9. And this is really a moment where uh, Jesus gives his disciples a little preview or a little glimpse into his divine identity and glory. Uh, and we're going to look a little bit at why this moment is, so is, is actually really important, not just for the disciples who were on the mountain with him, but also for us as disciples today. So the two things, and it might feel a little bit heavy, I'm just going to go through quite a bit through these verses, but... but I don't know, what's the, what's the word? Just saddle up? Yeah, let's jump in. Let's, let's dive in together. So the two things that uh, we want, I want to draw out from this passage are what the disciples see and also what the disciples hear. Because what they saw and heard didn't just change how they looked at Jesus, but it actually transformed how they saw their own lives and their own purpose. So let's start with some immediate context in this passage. So it says that this is about eight days after Jesus said this, and that he took Peter, John, and James with him up to the mountain to pray. What, what did Jesus say? Well, let's pause there for a sec. This is eight days after Jesus uh, says something to them, but so far in chapter 9 of Luke, he's said and done many things, right? There's, there's a lot going in the disciples' heads right now. At the start of the chapter, Jesus sends out his disciples on mission with the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the kingdom of God, to drive out demons, to cure diseases. And then we see crowds of people coming to Jesus, uh, and he welcomes them, speaking to them, teaching them about God's kingdom. And then he feeds over 5,000 people with just uh, a few loaves of bread and two fish. And then a little, uh, a little bit later, we see that Peter confesses Jesus as God's chosen Messiah, the one who would come to save his people. Now, I find this really, um, really interesting because obviously, you know, for, for, for many of us as Christians, as disciples, we just take this for granted. Yes, God, uh, Jesus is God's Messiah. He's, he's the Savior. But I think uh, sometimes we fail to see how significant this revelation was for Peter at that time. It was very unique to him. You see, the popular opinion at the time from the Jews was that God's Messiah would be a savior who would deliver Israel from all its enemies, especially its conquering powers. That God's savior would be someone who, who brings about revolution through, uh, through violence, essentially, to bring about and establish God's kingdom on earth. But Jesus turns this imagination of a Messiah completely on its head. He says instead that the Messiah actually must suffer many things, that the Messiah must be rejected. I don't know if there's another slide. That the Messiah must be killed and on the third day rise again. So Jesus just paints a very different picture of what Israel's salvation would look like. Actually, Jesus says that salvation wouldn't come through violent revolution, but through Jesus' own death and resurrection. And not only that, but he goes on to say that whoever wants to be part of this, who wants to follow him, then they must also deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. In other words, well, he also goes on to say, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. So in, in, in other words, he's saying that salvation wasn't coming through conquest or through violence, but actually it was coming through surrender. 
Salvation wasn't something that you're going to just lay hold of yourself. It was actually something that you, you would obtain by giving things up. So he doesn't call his disciples to arm themselves against the Romans. He doesn't call them to be revolutionaries fighting for power and control. Instead, he calls them to take up their cross, to deny their selfish ambition, to deny their self-seeking glory and power. You and I also have to walk this same path of service and surrender with Jesus. And of course, this is a hard road. It's not one that we easily take. It doesn't make all our problems go away. In fact, it gives us very new ones. Like, since becoming a Christian, I've had to face so many new temptations, so many new things that try to vie for my attention and priorities in life. Like, we'll be tempted, we, we might even face rejection at times. We might even have less material possessions as a result. But he promises that when we put our faith in him, our biggest problem, our biggest problem of sin and death is dealt with on the cross through his death and resurrection. We're given a completely new identity. We have a brand new purpose in life, not to live for ourselves, but to live for the king and his kingdom. And above all, we have a restored relationship with God for eternity. So, all this happens eight days before. So you can imagine the disciples are like, oh my goodness, this is a lot to take in right now. Like, I mean, you can imagine there are a lot of things that, uh, that are going inside their minds. Like, is this really going to be worth it? Like, am I, am I really going to give up everything? Like, have you thought that following Jesus? Is this, is this really worth it? Do I really want to be surrendering everything I am and everything I have? Like, we pray the generosity liturgy every single week. I wonder if there's ever a question in our minds, like, do I really, do I really want that? Should I really deny myself of all of life's pleasures? Whether it's free sex, more money, more power, or positions of influence that will get me what I want. Am I going to be wasting my life following this Jesus? Maybe even potentially being killed. Should I even actually believe that he is God's Messiah? especially when he's not going to deal with my oppressors and my problems the way that I imagine he would. Now, of course, we don't have any clear indication of what the disciples were thinking after Jesus challenged them with all these things. But I can just imagine that this would have been a huge challenge for them. I mean, it's a huge challenge for us, right, in the 21st century. This is challenging regardless of your position, regardless of your background or your upbringing, your social status, your economic status. The disciples didn't have the level of wealth or luxury that we have. Like, they, they didn't have the same access to unrestricted entertainment and travel plans and uh, options for jobs and education. That like we can often experience limited options in life depending on our own circumstances or upbringing or wealth. But these guys, these guys had like such a narrow choice in life. They were already missing out on so many of the pleasures that the Romans were enjoying very freely. And so for Jesus to come around now and, and, and then challenge them even more and say, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to 
surrender even the very little that you have to be my disciple. Now, I can only imagine the weight of hearing that. Like, how challenging this must be on, someone like, on people like the disciples, on, on, on myself included, when we hear something like this. I mean, so many of us in this very room, like, we would have had to deny ourselves certain pleasures or relationships in life or positions because we know that if we devoted ourselves to those things, we wouldn't be able to fully devote ourselves to Jesus and his kingdom. So it's off the back of this enormous challenge that eight days later, the disciples see and hear something which transforms them forever. They see something that strengthens them so much that it prepares them to see that all of this, all of this glory and power that Jesus promises is going to be worth the challenge. It's going to be worth it. They have an encounter which reminds them that he is worth the challenge. So it's in the transfiguration now that the disciples get this glimpse of the future glory and power that Jesus is promising, one that surpasses any other power and glory and pleasure in life. It's like if you went to the theater and the curtains were still closed, they were still drawn, but someone then just happened to open it up a little bit for you so that you got a a glimpse or a preview of what was to come. It's like a sort of ancient teaser trailer But the only way that um, you get the fuller story is if you watch the film, if you watch the entire series. I'm one of those people who I I just can't jump into um, a a, a sequel film without actually knowing what came before. I I don't know how people do it. Sorry if you are one of those people. I don't know how you can watch Mission Impossible 3 without knowing what happened in 1 and 2. It's like kind of like entering, entering into watching Avengers Endgame and not knowing what happened in Infinity War, and you're like, what, what on earth has that happened to half the world? Anyway, you'll just be confused. You'll be like, what is going on in the story? So similarly, what we have to do here to understand the significance of this scene, of this part on the mountain, is to know what came before and also what comes after. So let's start with what the disciples see. What do they see? So it says, as Jesus was praying... The appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. The two men, Moses, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. Oh, you read the Gospel of Luke. They, these guys sleep a lot, man. Like, you often find in these moments they're just asleep and they wake up to something crazy like this. But anyway, they fully, they became, when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. So the disciples here see something that no other person has. They see Jesus standing and talking with two of Israel's most celebrated heroes, Moses and Elijah. Now, why is this significant? Well, let's start with Moses. You might remember back in the story of Exodus, this is 1,500 years before this moment on the mountain, Um, Moses was the man chosen by God to bring the law of God to the people of Israel. And this is right after God delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt. And in Exodus 19, we read that God brings the people of Israel to a mountain called Mount Sinai. Or also in the Old Testament, the mountain is known as Mount Horeb. 
So God calls Moses up the mountain, and there he enters into a covenant with his people. And it's on this mountain that God uh, gives Moses the Ten Commandments and instructions for Israel uh, before they continue on their journey through the desert. They were to receive laws from God. But more than that, they were actually to hear from God and his own voice themselves. But in order to do that, he called them to prepare for it for three days. So after three days, God would come down in a dense cloud in the sight of all the people of Israel. But in order for them to hear God's voice, they first were called to consecrate themselves. And essentially what that means is fully and wholly devoting themselves to God. Mind, soul, body, heart, all their possessions, even their very clothing, they were told to devote to God. It meant surrendering everything that they had in order to seek his presence. And this wasn't any small feat. Like encountering a holy God, the king of the universe, I mean, that, that could carry great risk, right? It, it could risk exposing ourselves and being vulnerable, completely vulnerable with our, with our sin, with our guilt, with our shame, and all the murkiness that's inside. I mean, there were, there were dangers that were carried with that. Dangers of separation or even death itself. But what is insane about it is that God doesn't command consecration to keep people away, to keep them at a distance, to say, go away, you don't belong near me. Actually, he commands it precisely so that people can come and meet with him, so that they can come and draw near to him. In fact, in Exodus 24, we also read this, that Moses... And 70 of the elders of Israel actually went up the mountain and they saw God. They saw the God of Israel. And God didn't raise his hand against these leaders, but they saw God and they ate and they drank. Now, that is crazy. Just think about it. They are sitting in the presence of God, eating and drinking. The mountain was a place where God would enter into covenant with his people. He would instruct them, but also he would commune with them. He would dine with them. Fast forward a few hundred years onto the second person that the disciples see on the mountain, Elijah. So Elijah was a prophet who also had an encounter with God on Mount Sinai. In 1 Kings 19, we read that God spoke to Elijah on the mountain, but it wasn't through a windstorm or through an earthquake or through fire like he did with Moses and Israel, but actually, it was through a gentle whisper. On the same mountain, God tells Elijah and instructs him who would be king over Israel. And it's on that very mountain that he tells Elijah who would succeed him as a prophet. So why does this matter in the moment of the transfiguration? Well, it matters because when we read the Old Testament, we read it through the lens of Jesus' life. The fact that Jesus is with Moses and Elijah shows us that whatever God's spirit reveals to us today is not just new revelation. It's not just something that competes with what God has already said, but actually it falls in line with what God has been communicating all along. That the whole purpose of this scene is so that the disciples could see that everything that God has been communicating through the Bible needs to be seen through the lens of Jesus. Jesus puts everything 
in the law and the prophets, in the right perspective. So here we have Moses and Elijah encountering the presence of God on a mountain. And here we have them encountering yet again the presence of God on a mountain, meeting Jesus and talking with him. So what were they talking about? When verse 31, it tells us, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Uh, Interestingly, the word for departure used here is the word exodus in Greek, which is basically where you get the word exodus from in the Old Testament. So what they're talking about, essentially, is Jesus bringing about a new exodus, not just for Israel, but actually for the entire world from the bondage of sin and death. So the disciples got to see something incredible and extraordinary. They couldn't believe their eyes. They saw Moses and Elijah, but most importantly, they saw Jesus' glory. They got a little, uh, a little teaser into his divinity. Now just think about it. All up to now, all up to this time, they've been seeing Jesus' humanity, right? They've been seeing his hunger, his tiredness, They've been seeing his weakness and his physical limits. But here they were getting a glimpse into his deity and power. Now, just imagine being the disciples here. You're like waking up and you're like rubbing your eyes and this, this, is, this is what you see. Like you, you probably think you're still dreaming. And of course, Peter kind of didn't want to wake up from this, so to speak. He didn't want to leave this dreamlike moment. He wanted to set tents on the mountain and enjoy this mountaintop experience. He wasn't interested in getting off the mountain and heading to Jerusalem as Jesus was always planning. He just wanted to sit around and fanboy Moses and Elijah for as long as he could. But you can forgive Peter, I think. You can forgive him because it must have been really hard for him not to overstep the mark. I mean, you just imagine if Rathmeth Stormzy He'd probably say things that he doesn't even realize. And just out of excitement, just because you're in the presence of essentially superstars in your eyes. So it says this, as the men were leaving Jesus, Moses and Elijah, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not realize what he was saying. What is it that Peter didn't realize in this moment? Why do you think it was, I mean, it almost sounds like he's, he's offering a good thing, right? Like, why, why, would, why would it be something that is not required in this moment? I think Peter didn't realize the enormous distance between Jesus and all the other prophets and teachers that God has sent before. Like, he was prepared to set up three equal tents in honor of all three people in front of him, but... God the Father quickly shuts that down in what comes next. He's like, Moses and Elijah, these are your celebrated heroes, but they they pale in comparison to who is in front of you right now. You see, Peter may have been thinking, oh my goodness, Israel's saviors are here. Like, finally, we can start this revolution. Like, Moses and Elijah, this is what we've been waiting for. And he tries to help them settle, but little did he know or realize they weren't there to hang out with the disciples. That wasn't their mission. 
That wasn't their goal. Jesus was on the move in the world, and the glory of God was always meant to come from the mountain and be carried down into the valleys, into the towns, into the cities, into the murkiness and brokenness of this world. It was never meant to just be experienced on the mountaintop. And this is what we as a church are also called to. Yes, we're meant to bask and encounter the glory of God on a Sunday. Like today is amazing. I love it. But if this is all we're living for, that is not the mission of God. The mission of God is for this glory to then be carried out into our weeks. We're meant to reflect God's glory back into the world as we head back to our homes, to our workplaces, to our neighborhoods, to our schools and unis. We're not just meant to see and savor all this glory for ourselves. It's meant to be taken with us outside. So the disciples saw all this. And lastly, after seeing the glory of Jesus, Peter and his disciples see a cloud surrounding the mountain, similar to Exodus. Remember the picture. And out of that cloud, they then hear the voice of God. In verse 35, we read, a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was all alone. A question, do you prefer to see things or to hear them? Like, are you someone who will sit down, read through a great book, or someone who would prefer to just listen to the audio version of it? Now, nothing wrong with either of those. I'm probably someone who would just watch the film adaptation and skip all of that. But we're mostly a culture of the visual, right? Like we are saturated in images and videos all over the internet, all over social media, streaming, TV. And so I think when we look at passages like the Transfiguration, we can become fixated on just the visual elements of it. And I think this is only amplified by art throughout the centuries that have depicted the Transfiguration with bright clothing, Moses and Elijah in all their splendor, a giant mountain, clouds surrounding. But of course, I think what these don't manage to capture is what the disciples hear, not just see. God the Father says, this is my son, whom I have chosen, listen to him. And after they heard this, everything else disappeared, with Jesus being left alone, visible to them. And I think what the disciples heard was probably more important than what they saw. We're a people desperate to fix our eyes and our ears on so many things. We're always looking and listening. And the way we live and view the world is largely dependent on how we, uh, what, what we look at for understanding and what we listen to for instruction. So what does this mean for us? What, what might God want us to hear from this passage this morning? Well, here are two very simple suggestions, and they're so simple, it's probably almost laughable, but suggestion number one from this passage is look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. And number two, listen to Jesus. Now, one very simple and obvious way we get to do this every single week is by worshiping him. What is worship if not a surrendering of all ourselves and giving our full attention to Jesus together. 
It's a way that our heart and mind gets to gaze at the glory of Jesus. It's why we do this every single week, right? We want to look at Jesus and listen to his instructions and to his words, and then we take it with us into our week. Now, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes it can really feel like, why, why on earth do we do this every single week? Like, why, why are you here every single week on repeat all the time? Is it really making any difference? Is it making any difference to your life? Well, here's something that I've shamelessly stolen from Andy Tilsley, who leads our Sutton service. Maybe it will help. A while back, uh, Andy mentioned a study that was done at Berkeley University in California. And in that experiment, they got uh, some participants on their campus to gaze up at a grove of massive eucalyptus trees for just one minute. And then they also got some other participants to stand in the very same spot, but instead of looking at the trees, they made them face in the opposite direction towards a large building on campus. Then, after 60 seconds, the researcher would accidentally drop a box of pens. And what they found was really interesting. What they found was that the participants that had been looking up at the trees were more awe-inspired, and as a result of that awe, they were picking up more pens to help out the researcher than those who had been staring at the building. They found that what we fix our attention and our eyes on inspires our behavior. When we fix our eyes and our attention on something that inspires awe and wonder and majesty, it actually makes us kinder and more generous people. Like the people who simply stared at a tree for 60 seconds were willing to be more helpful than those who stared for the same amount of time at something that wasn't inspiring awe and wonder. Now, this is just from 60 seconds at staring at nature. I can only imagine what gazing at Jesus does every single day, every single week, when we gather here to worship. I mean, we get to be here for like, what, 90 or so minutes? Unless, you know, we, we, uh, we follow the church traditions that just don't have uh, any clocks and, and, and we go on. But we get to encounter and stare at the majesty of Jesus and listen to his words together. But I can only imagine what that is doing for our hearts. Sometimes it's not easy to realize the extent of how it's affecting us, right? And even when we meet in midweek groups, every morning when we maybe do our devotionals and we pray, or we get into work and we pray for the day, we pray for the office or the tasks ahead of us, I know that my days go a whole lot better when I've started the day gazing at Jesus. I know for sure that when I spend a, a day not worshiping or praying and gazing on his beauty, I feel the detrimental effects of it. Like I, I start fixing my attention on things that don't fill me with hope or love or peace. In fact, I, I start getting more anxious over like the most stupid little things. Like I get so selfish and so proud. I see it like almost immediately. Hello. Um, just last week, me and Jess got back from traveling in the Canadian Rockies. 
And I have to say, it's one of the most stunning, beautiful places that I've ever seen with my eyes. Like, mountains everywhere. Blue lakes, like, so blue. It's unexplainable how they're so blue. It's like someone's just photoshopped it. It's crazy. And while we were there, we hired uh, what's called a mystery car, right? And basically, it's uh, the cheapest possible car you could rent, and they decide what they'll give you if they've got a spare back tire to go with it you're lucky, but it's like we were expecting like the cheapest, most basic car, and we, we, we got there, and uh, the lady was like, well, we've got two options for you. You can either have this massive, ginormous pickup truck, or you can go for the Tesla. <laughs> now, of course, me and Jess just looked at each other with a smile and grin, and we were just uh, with the best British posh, posh voices we could muster, Oh, yes, uh, we, perhaps we'll go for the Tesla, thank you very much. As if we expected nothing less. So, here we are. I've lost my train of thought. Yeah, there we go. Now, of course, this was like the most unexpected blessing while we were away. It was a great gift, but... As with many good gifts, I then start feeling like I deserved it. I felt very entitled to it. And it wasn't too long before I noticed my snobbery coming out on the road. I start overtaking all these other peasant cars, <laughs> waving goodbye. I start getting overly anxious over how on earth, where on earth I parked this thing. I'm like, is this going to be broken into? I start getting nervous of where I park, how I parked, who I park next to. This car looks like it could be a robber. Like I'm not, I'm not going to park, I'm not going to park there. I then start dreaming of getting my very own Tesla, <laughs> spending hours online looking at how I could make things work while trying to live in a, in a city like London. Maybe even skimping uh, on other things. Maybe giving away less of my money maybe even taking up a second job. I don't know how these thoughts come to my head. I'm like, I'm tired enough with one job. But of course, it's safe to say that that dream was quickly quashed when I looked on my Monzo app, realized rent was going out in two days. I'm like, okay, fine. It's not meant to be. It's not meant to be. Now, this is just a silly story, right? But I see what the lack of awe and awareness of God does to my own heart. A question. What do you think made me a kinder, more generous person? Do you think looking at them, oh, the picture's gone. Do you think looking at the majestic mountains in the background or looking and staring and being obsessed with a Tesla in front, what made me a better person? And you see, none of these things are necessarily bad things, but when they become the ultimate things, they take precedence over our hearts and our lives. I know this very, very well, and often that's when my faith starts suffering. And the challenge that we heard at the start that Jesus gave to his disciples of denying myself and surrendering becomes all the more harder. Like, if I, if I don't spend moments where I gaze at Jesus, that challenge, it will always feel impossible. We have to look at Jesus. We have to listen to him. This is what he says will bring us closer 
to God's presence. We get to commune with him on this mountain. Like, just like the Israel, uh, Moses and the Israelites did, we get to do that to a greater degree every single day. Like, we don't have to spend three days preparing for it. Like, we can have it right now because Jesus has brought a new exodus for us. He has brought salvation through his death and resurrection. Like, he's paved the way. Actually, it says that we have we can access boldly into the throne of grace, that we, we, we don't have to fear shame or guilt. We can come to God trusting that Jesus has made the way for us to encounter him and enjoy him as our father. So I wonder if the band would come back up. What we are going to do is simply gaze and look at Jesus right now as we worship. As we worship, maybe use this moment to just reorientate your vision towards Jesus, to turn our attention his way. And maybe this is a moment where all the clouds and all the other voices have just vanished and disappeared, and you simply have Jesus standing in front of you. You know, I I kind of wondered, after reading this passage, what was the next thing that the disciples said to Jesus? Right after they'd seen all this and they heard that voice, like, what, what would you say? Like, what would you say? I mean, it tells us that they literally came back down from the mountain, and they didn't, even, they didn't mention this to anyone until much later. I think this was just a very sacred moment. This was a moment to listen, not to speak. This was a moment for devotion, not distraction. And so as we worship right now, that's a moment for that devotion of regazing at Jesus, regazing and be filled with his awe and his glory and majesty. Why don't we stand and I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who helps us see and helps us hear. Thank you, Lord God, that this mountaintop experience is something that we have access to and the privilege of experiencing and knowing for ourselves. Lord, we devote ourselves to the King of glory. Help us hone in our focus on him. Lord, I pray that all the distractions that have taken our gaze off completely undone by seeing the majesty and glory, that ginormous, majestic view of Jesus. And just like the the Tesla pales in significance compared to all those big and beautiful mountains, Lord, we, we realize that this world pales in comparison to seeing the majesty and glory of Jesus, King of Kings. So, Lord, we devote ourselves to you right now. And, Lord, help us to carry your glory, to carry this vision into our everyday lives. Lord, in whatever circumstances that we need that glory in, Lord, help us to carry that. Whether it's in the brokenness of our family, of our work, whether it's in our uncertainties and our fears and our doubts, whether it's in the feelings of burden of temptations, of rejection, of feelings of lack, 
Lord, I pray that you would come through and reveal yourself as more than enough, as worthy of the challenge, worthy of it all. Holy Spirit, fill us afresh this morning, Lord. Fill us afresh. You are bringing about a new thing in our lives. And I thank you that we get to be a part of this transfiguration, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.